HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food and beverage radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. I spent seven years working in the restaurant and bar industry in front of house and back of house. And I just feel like Heritage Radio Network's content helps me feel so well connected to the other creators and chefs and restaurateurs and all the amazing things that they're doing, I still feel like I get to be a part of the kind of in-team. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. Uh, looks like we have to do another show without Damon. He's having uh, technical difficulties again. Yeah, we, we promise we promise it's not a Fourth of July fireworks accident. It actually is. <laughs> this isn't just code for you know he got he had a, a few too many hard starts and started playing around with some M40s. No, 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 no. This is actually real technical difficulties. Don't worry, he's fine. He's fine. Uh, he'll be fine, and he'll be back as soon as he can. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of the Fourth of July, Greg, you get into anything over the weekend? I went to the beach, man. I beached nice. it. Yeah. I I did too. Got myself a nice base burn um, for the summer. Um, then I had some folks over and we did a little impromptu grill. I had uh, twelve people in the backyard. That's delightful, man. Uh, yeah, it was nice. Um, you know, I don't think uh, any of us were in any mood to celebrate the country uh, this year, or frankly, for it's been several <laughs> years for me. Uh, but we celebrated each other. We had a great time. It was good. Good to commiserate and hang out with people and 
grill some food and drink plenty, plenty booze, as you might imagine. We do over here at my house. Um, so yeah, it was a good weekend all around. And now back to the grind. Yeah, exactly. You know, and not to not to get too too maudlin about it at the beginning of the show here, but uh, I I once had someone tell me that uh, love is what sticks around when like goes away, and I think that that's very you know it's very good advice for relationships. Also, good advice for the Fourth of July these last couple of years because I really you know I really do love this country, but God damn, it has been hard to like it recently. Man, couldn't agree more. Yeah, um, yeah, topsy turvy is uh, is. Is putting it mildly, I think. Yeah. Well, glad I'm glad you got to eat some delicious meats and uh, have some delicious drinks. And uh, yeah, I did. I did the same. And that's that's what it's all about, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, it's also just an excuse to celebrate the people around you and take some time off and eat some good food and drink some good stuff, right? Yeah, and it was also kind of fun for me to have my. It, it literally started off as it was supposed to be just four of us here, including myself, and then suddenly it just kept winding up. People kept. Uh, uh, you know, just pinging me and saying like, Hey, are you doing anything? And I'm like, yeah, come on over. Um, you know, I zipped on my scooter over to ends meat. Love those guys. Great butcher shop here in New York. Um, grabbed a bunch of different variety of uh, sausages they had in the case, uh, poached them in some beer with some onions and then put them on the grill. Uh, it was, it was really great. So I, I, I feel like that's how this always starts with you. It's like, Oh yeah, we're only supposed to have two people over. That's what happened last summer where like you had two people yep. over for a barbecue one time and you wound up doing it every week for like six months. Yeah. Yeah. That we created our little sort of <laughs> outdoor pod during the end of the, end of the thick part of the pandemic. I don't know. It kept me sane. It's like, um, you know, of course I enjoy what I do for a living, but that can't be all I am. And I really do enjoy cooking on a grill and smoking on a grill and i have a grill that can do both so you know i love to get out there every week and bang it out so we'll probably start that over again this this, this year you're always welcome and you came a few times last year so come on over well once all my friends stop getting married i'll be there man yeah man geez <laughs> traveling man speaking of traveling men who's in the studio today with us toby maloney is in the virtual studio with us today uh coming to us live from williamsburg brooklyn what's up oh, toby? right right here in the city Right here Hello. in good old New York. It's like we're all together. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, just different sides of the same borough. <laughs> yeah, we're all in Brooklyn. That's true. It happens to be, you know, a massive, massive borough. Um, but you don't typically, you're not typically here. Um, you live in Chicago these days, um, but you're here because you're pimping out your new book. Yeah, exactly. I've been in Chicago for the last about a little over three years, opening a bar and uh, writing a book. So, I mean, you say a little over three years, and most of that time has been pandemic-driven. Uh, uh, we spoke a little bit off-air about the writing process of the book, and uh, you feel it sort of a silver lining, strangely enough, right? And few of them came from the pandemic, but this one was kind of one, right? Absolutely. That um, there was nothing else to do. So I was writing eight-plus hours a day um, between my amazing co-author, Emma Emma Jansen and I, we wrote about 180,000 words. And then she hacked her way through that and got it down to the 60,000 we needed. And that would not have been possible without having nothing to do but write. 180,000 down to 60, meaning one third. <laughs> so you got yeah, two, two out of three. Of, you got two thirds of edit on the floor. Yeah. Are you going to sweep any of that up into book two? I don't. Um, I have to talk to Emma about it. I don't even know what's there anymore um, sure. but there has to be some good stuff um but 
I mean, yeah. I'm putting the, I'm putting the cart before the horse. I mean, you know, let's get this one out there and, into people's hands. Yeah. Um, and, but also, and the, I mean, you're wise. You're wise to think in terms of the Netflix business model, man. It's like nothing winds up on the cutting room floor. That's all content, baby, right there. Exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, and the book is called, by the way, the, uh, the Bartender's Manifesto, and it's you and Emma Jansen who wrote this thing uh, over the course of about two years. 180 thousand words. That's incredible. But chopped down to a manageable sixty thousand. Um, tell us about the book. Um, so the full name is The Bartender's Manifesto, How to Think, Drink, and Create Cocktails Like a Pro by Toby Maloney with Emma Jansen and the Bartenders of the Violet Hour. Um, that terse little title um, kind of says that it's about um, how to create cocktails. And how we do that is through talking to all of these bartenders who had had drinks on the menu and they talk about their inspiration and their intention and then their methodology about how they actually make it as well. And so instead of it just being shake slash stir um, strain, it's, you know, an entire chunky paragraph of, of methodology. And I wanted this in the beginning because I was telling my editor, like, if you say combine butter, eggs, and lemon juice, how often are you going to get a hollandaise that shakes, strain, stir isn't enough to really get to the meat of actually how to create a, uh, fabricate a cocktail. Right. And I love that you use that uh, sort of culinary analogy there. And that's because you have a culinary background yourself and, and so do I. So I think this stuff kind of resonates with me when you talk like that. Absolutely. I mean, we have the five mother drinks, which is like Escoffier's five mother sauces and, um, coming from a, a cook's background that absolutely bleeds into how you look at at cocktails yeah well and also i mean not and not all you know even within that that variation like not all stirs and not all shakes are created equal like you make a certain drink enough you sort of get a sense of like okay this one wants this one wants a little more dilution because it comes out of the tin hot or you know this one you want to just like short shake it so that it can have a little bit more evolution going in in know throughout the drinking experience like and i think it's good to give people that background because they get a sense that you know it's not just plug and play recipes it's this sense of you know these are individual things that you need to really fine-tune a, a, a sense for and that's kind of one thing that you that it looks like you talk about a lot in your book it's like you know we're not we're not just technicians were people that like need to have a sense and like feel these things out and really get uh, an, an individual um, just, I don't know, spidey sense of how these drinks need to be made. Absolutely. And, it, you know, we start with some real basic things. We, we even go beyond just shake stir. We talk about a coop shake, a rock shake, um, a Colin shake, a whip shake, a whip shake being something that goes on to crushed ice and that we use the term narrative arc, but how that drink does, change over the course of its lifetime from the first sniff to the last sip. All of that has to do with chill dilution and therefore either how you shake or how you stir a cocktail and what goes into that drink defines that as much as what needs to come out. See, I, I love that. Now you're, now that you're talking about narrative arcs, now you're speaking my language. Cause that's most of my, most of my interaction now that I, I still don't know how I make money by slapping my fingers against a computer keyboard every day, but paychecks keep showing up and I'm not going to question it. Nice. Um, 
but you know, that's, that's more kind of my interaction with, with the world of bartending these days. It's kind of like, okay, what are the, what are the, the, the stories? Where is this industry gone? Where is it going? What are we saying with the things that we're making and putting in front of people to eat and drink? When did you kind of start thinking about making individual cocktails in that, in that vein? Um, I mean, years ago, uh, a friend of mine actually just sent me this uh, little document that I sent to her in 2020 or 2013 about cocktails and about the basis of this book. And a lot of the, the bones were there even then, but it wasn't until I got back into Chicago that I could be at the Violet Hour enough to really start fleshing out the book. And then obviously the world came crashing down and I was stuck at home. Um, but that also helped, you know, I don't make cocktails at home very often. And so I did a, a fair amount of recipe testing for the book at home, which also changed a lot of my thinking about cocktails. I'm sure it changed your perspective entirely. Like, I think that that's a, a thing that we often forget when we're, you know, making drinks behind our respective bars because, we're in a very professional environment, you know, and everything is in its place and within reach. And there's no, it's, it looks effortless because we do it all the time, but comparatively to making cocktails at home, it is effortless. Like it's hard to make drinks at home, even for me. I don't know how you feel about that. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and one of the big epiphanies, the biggest epiphany that I had of that was with the ice coming out of my freezer, I could not shake hard enough and long enough to get the right dilution. And I have a jackhammer of a shake. <laughs> I ended up having to add, I, I had cold water in the fridge and I would add an ounce and a half of water to my shaker along with the ice to get the right dilution. Right. Because I think what people don't realize, and maybe even your eyes were open to it, a home freezer is, is very cold. much harder ice than, uh, um, than we're getting out of our ice machines that are just dumping into an insulated box, which is basically a, a you know, basically a giant cooler. Yep. Um, and there's nothing there to keep that ice frozen except for more ice. Um, yep. So that ice is is considerably softer. Yeah, it hovers just, around 32 degrees. Yeah, and the ice coming out of I, the ice coming out of your your home fridge is about 10 degrees. Yeah, exactly. So it's, so it's hard as a rock. <laughs> yeah, and so it also can shatter, which is a whole other like all of a sudden you have a to deal with a different surface area of your ice. So it's a lot a lot going on making drinks at home that we don't have to deal with when you're behind a professional bar. Right. I feel very much the same way about cooking at home. I do, you know, try and enjoy it. Um, but the thing that kills me is that, you know, the knife that I use is, is bigger than the cutting board that I have at home, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, because I'm used to using that knife, you know, all my culinary career, um, but I don't have enough space to wield such a weapon you know and then i i look at my, my my range and i'm like it's so tiny and then i i reach for the refrigerator door and i'm like i can't walk in there right <laughs> so everything just seems like i'm a giant in a, in a in like a lilliputian world and i think that translates the same is true for for making drinks at home again it's just more like it's kind of weirdly opposite at home i feel like i'm a, i'm tiny because it's so far for me to go to get the ice and that's nowhere near where the booze is and right and where's the glassware and uh, you know like it, it's i I can see the conundrum. I can see and have seen the conundrum of trying to teach people how to make drinks at home. And, and unless you're making them at home yourself, which I think, as you just mentioned, during R&D and stuff like that, I, I'm typically doing all that stuff at the bar. 
But if yeah. I'm doing it for an audience that's going to be uh, that's going to be using that information from their home now, I try and do that stuff at home so that I can come across the same problems that they might come across. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty tough. So we got, I, I kind of jumped right in because I was excited to hear about your book. But let's back up a little bit and talk about you know who you are for the listener, um, Toby Maloney. You've been in the field for a long time. You're, you're a well-known name amongst us, and I think that's why I kind of glossed right past it. But you know, give our listener an idea of who you are and why they'd want to buy your book. Um, well, I I moved from Chicago to New York in the late '90s and worked in the clubs, and then I got a job in the West Village at the Grange Hall with Del Pedro, and he had a lot of thoughts about cocktails that I stuck in my head and then one of my friends took me to this little bar at 134 Eldridge Street and I started drinking there and talking to the bartender owner and we got along great we talked cocktails and for a couple months and then I started uh, working there and that was milk and honey obviously sorry um, and so I was the first bartender <laughs> yeah. hired there and it was doing it just for you know a couple months to so he could do some laundry and have a date and have a little bit of a life and i was there five and a half years um and in that time i also worked for julie reiner at flatiron um audrey saunders at pegu i held down the back bar at freeman's for a couple years um and then in 2007 i went out and opened the violet hour in chicago what made you decide to jump from New York back to Chicago? Uh, was it just sheerly opportunity or were you thinking, you know, maybe New York is getting saturated and, and other places need a little bit of uh, attention? Or was it just you wanted to go home? <laughs> um, a little bit of the first two that, um, I mean, Chicago is a great town and I hadn't really been back much when I lived in New York. But one of the people who I worked for in Chicago is this man named Terry Alexander. And for 10 years, he always ended up in one of the bars that I worked every year when he came out here to run around New York. And he eventually was like, we seem to kind of have the same idea of what's cool. Do you want to come back and open a place in Chicago? And I did. I mean, there's nothing like being first to market. And, and that, that sounds so capitalistic, but like to show people a different way, a completely different thing. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you have, you know, the one drink that changed your life. I know the w one drink that changed mine and to be able to be like, put something in front of something that changes the paradigm of what a cocktail can be or what a drink can be is that's a cool thing to do. Yeah. So you saw the opportunity to go back there and, and kind of be, as you said, first to market or just kind of first to bring this style to that arena. Exactly. There were obviously Chicago's a great drinking and eating town, and there were places doing classic cocktails, but there wasn't that like craft cocktail bar there yet. No eight kinds of ice, um, speakeasy esque sort of thing. And we were first there, and we got the requisite amount of hate. You know, just. <laughs> opening a bar in Chicago in 2007 with no olives, no gray goose, yeah. um, no cranberry juice. People lost their goddamn minds. Um, Did you have them at least? <laughs> um, 
we of course we had Malort. Yeah, it's yeah, illegal yeah, okay. to open a bar in Chicago and not have a case of Malort on hand. Right, it comes right, with just, your just, comes with your license. I think it does. Just wanted yes. to make sure you weren't running afoul of the law. <laughs> Please continue. Um, it was a couple of years until we actually put Malort in a cocktail, but um, yeah, it's a it's a rite of passage and something that every New York or every Chicago bartender has in the back of their head is you know, can I make this with Malort? Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, so for we just let's see the twenty seventh of this month, or no, the twenty seventh of last month, June will be fifteen years that Violet Hour has been open, which incredible. is pretty, pretty wow. cool. That's incredible, and especially when you say what you said about the beginnings, right, where uh, people lost their minds because they couldn't get uh, you know gray goose with a bunch of olives or, or possibly a Cosmo or what have you at that time. When you know folks thought that those drinks were sophisticated, and they are in their way, but it's not the product that you were trying to present to people. What made you a make that decision and b persist? Like surely, amongst the all those haters, the requisite amount, as you mentioned, there had to be enough lovers, or you wouldn't have made it, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, I wanted to put a line in the sand, just like Sasha did. Like he had this ethos and this idea of what people should be drinking and he was right. Like, so I wanted to do the same thing and have this place to have cocktails that was completely unlike anything else. And to do that, you get some hate, but but yes, you get a ton of love. You know, the, the service industry is the first people who jump on that and be like, this is cool. And then the, the foodies become drinkies pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, we've built a, a legion of people who, you know, have had their first dates there or have gotten engaged there, gotten married there. Wow. Um, so it it's a pretty special place, I think, for a lot of Chicagoans. And Oh, for sure. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, still marching on, as you said, 15 years old, that's incredible. And yeah, those things begin to happen, you know, where, where someone did have their first date there. And then years later, they came back and got engaged there. And maybe even a couple of years after that, they came back and uh, got married and who knows what next anniversary they'll celebrate with you because now you're part of the fabric that makes up their lives. I, I would just throw in that. I totally agree with that philosophy and that ethos of, um, I want people to drink <laughs> what I want them to drink, but I would just say when they're with me, you know? Uh, it's easy enough to say that I just want you to go. If, if you just want to go and have a, a beer and a shot, there's a place for that. It's just not here, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I build my places and my menus to reflect what I want to serve you tonight. Uh, and if you if you're not into that tonight, then come back another night. Um, let's take a quick break uh, and hear from our sponsors. We'll come right back and keep talking with Toby Maloney uh, about uh, his new book and uh, all the things that he's done in his past. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste 
into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Southern, summer, it's hot. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's how it works. Yeah, man. Uh, you keeping cool? You doing anything fun this summer? I mean, I'm going to go down to Tales of the Cocktail where it's probably going to be even hotter <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to see if we take home a plate uh, this year. Uh, you know, nominated uh, for the fifth year in a row uh, for Best Podcast Broadcaster uh, Video Series. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's really great to be on that list with so many amazing people so many years in a row. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's hoping this is the year that you and I score some new flatware. But, uh, you know, it also... <laughs> Uh, I feel like we should mention that it wouldn't be possible to even be in the running this year, let alone for five years, without the help of the great folks at Heritage Radio Network. Um, they really do a lot for us, for this show, and for the you know dozens of other great food and beverage podcasts that they have and that they support. Yeah, 100%, Greg. We obviously wouldn't be here without uh, Heritage Radio Network and our valued listeners and our valued business partners uh, keeping our communities vibrant together. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this is a call to action. Um, please, if, you got, if you've got some time and, and a little bit of coin, uh, check out heritageradionetwork.org and donate to, to keep shows like ours and many other shows on the air. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, especially because they're doing their summer membership drive right now, mm-hmm. which means that if you sign up for your fully tax deductible membership, uh, you're also going to be in the running to score some cool swag. You know, who doesn't, who doesn't love swag? Yeah, agreed. Uh, and Heritage, Heritage Radio puts out some really cool stuff. Um, so, you know, uh, best thing for you is the best thing for us. Uh, donate to Heritage Radio Network to keep this and many other shows on the air. You're listening to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network, and we're in the studio today with Toby Maloney from Chicago's Violet Hour and um, 
And his new book is out called The Bartender's Manifesto. It's got a much longer title than that, but I can't remember it all off my head. Um, and I want to dive back into both of those things at once, right? The book is, is certainly um, inspired by, obviously not entirely, but inspired by the training program that goes on at the Violet Hour, which is um, sort of notorious and legendary in our field. Can you talk a little bit about that training program and, and how that uh, how the, the reader is going to see that appear in the book? Sure. Um, so we have this, it's called the syllabus. And depending on exactly who's going through it, we can get through it between, I would say, four hours and 16 hours. Um, and it's based on 17 classic cocktails. And through each cocktail, we tell that we show the staff all of the important parts of a cocktail. So the first one is we talk about texture and balance and temperature and aroma. Um, and then we go into the more esoteric things like uh, echoing, complementing, mirroring, narrative arc. Um, but that structure of we start with the daiquiri and, you know, by the end we're dealing with like Pim's cups and things that are a lot more complex. And so each drink is a theory in and upon itself. And how do you put your team at the Violet Hour through this program? When we're not open, they sit down with a with a packet of all the information, and we make drinks, and we talk about drinks, and um, then at the end, we have a big spirits tasting. Um, end of each day, we have a big spirits tasting. We used to do it where we, we you would taste the components of each cocktail while we made the cocktail and to understand how it all came together. But, you know, if you do four or five drinks and you're tasting drinks, plus all the booze that goes into them, that last half an hour is more chatting than learning. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that last half an hour is the beginning half hour of the next session. Cause you have to do it again. Um, and this sounds like a, a, a at least time-wise and it sounds like product-wise, this is an expense that you and the team are willing to incur to then have a team that is so strong and knowledgeable. And I think that's um, commendable and not necessarily usual in our field of endeavor. Well, exactly. That, um, you know, it, uh, it's getting everybody on the same page and kind of speaking the same language because the bartenders at the Violet Hour are who comes up with the cocktails that go on the menu. And that in itself is a whole long workshopping process that is also incredibly time consuming and expensive, but it gives the entire staff a, a way of seeing how, all, how menus are built, how cocktails are built that fit in different places on the menu. And then they have this real strong ownership of what they're serving. Well, right. And that just creates a consistent, uh, you know, through line from member to member of the team that is, uh, again, at used language, right? So they're all, they're all using the same language and the same tools, and then they can deliver that product to the guest in a more consistent fashion. So if I come in and you're behind the bar tonight, that doesn't matter that then, you know, Jane is behind the bar the next night or Tom's behind yeah. the bar the next night. I'm going to get a very similar experience, and, and that's kind of one of the goals, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question that you asked me off the air. I'm going to put it right back on you. Uh, why does mixology matter more than ever in this time of the white claw right i mean everything's secular that when i got into 
I, I'm just starting to own mixology. There's never been another word that makes that captures what we're, I'm talking about when I'm talking about the craft cocktail and I'm talking about all of the study and all of that goes into being more than just a bartender. And it, it, being just a bartender, if you want to pour Guinness and you know shots of Powers whiskey, that's awesome. That's a great job. That's a wonderful thing to do. But there is this other job that is a little more intense. So, um, you know, it back in the late nineties when I got into it and everything was it, not even infused vodkas, but like mass produced flavored vodkas and, you know, apple teenies and adios motherfuckers and all of those can I say that on the air? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> this ain't, this ain't fresh fucking air, baby. <laughs> All yeah. right, perfect. Um, you know, we had this, everything was sour off the gun, and then we had this true revolution where everything was fresh juice and jiggers and um, weird esoteric things, and every drink took 15 minutes to make, and sometimes it was 30 minutes before you got it if there was... And it was labor intensive and time and kind of, and oftentimes the bartender was pretentious as fuck and annoying. Um, So after a long time of that, then people's, you know, backlash of that is a can of something that has almost no flavor. Right. So I think that hint of hint of lime hint of, (laughs) <laughs> chemical lime, right? Yeah. <laughs> Air freshener washed through a vodka soda. Um, you know, and because we are having that backlash and this, the white cloth sort of thing is taking over, I think it's more important than ever to go to bars that, again, you know, have five different kinds of red bitter that it, you, if you, because you might want Luxardo bitter instead of Campari or Capoletti in your Negroni this time. And those things matter and flavor and texture and temperature and all these things matter. And so we need to keep going to good bars, even if on the weekends you're popping the claw or whatever it's called. Well, can I, can <laughs> I, no I, law I, with I, the claw, Toby, <laughs> no laws with the claws, man, especially over 4th of July weekend. God knows. Right. But- I wanted to ask you a question because I also have a really complicated relationship with that word mixologist. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, like you're right, you do need something to say, like I like this is I am a bartender, but this is what I do specifically within that realm. Yeah. Right. But I also don't didn't ever feel comfortable identifying as a mixologist because there's something there that I feel almost kind of sets you above the guest. Whereas bartender is very much just kind of like, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, pouring shots of powers or making a Ramos, you know, you are right. still a bartender. The goal is still the same to give someone a good time. And I, if, as a result of that, I only ever identified as a mixologist one time. And it was when I was in the emergency room after I fell off my bike and knew my wrist was broken and they give you that little box on the intake form that says occupation. And I was like, <laughs> I need a word to tell these people that it's very, very important that I get full functionality back in my hand right. quickly. So I wrote mixologist and the, the the nurse who took me in literally looks at it and goes, oh, you're a mixologist. Cool. And then looks at me and goes, ooh. <laughs> 
Yeah. But you know, it's I, 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 it's it's one of these words where it's like it's useful, but I hate it because it does have that air of pretentiousness to it, and I constantly wonder if it's outstayed its welcome or not. And I, I, you know, but I haven't written a book on it, so I'd love to hear what you think about it. I think that I agree with you a hundred percent that it it came in at a time where the people who embraced it were oftentimes the most insufferable of all of the <laughs> bartenders. And I am 100% putting myself in that category. Um, I have, I have bored people and mansplained things and done some really horrific, uh, unhospitable things in the name of pouring booze into a glass and giving it to somebody. Um, but I think that maybe now it's we have, we're far enough from the inception of that word with this particular run of cocktail making that now it's not my favorite word, but it immediately tells somebody exactly what you do, you know, and it is different. If I, if I tell somebody I'm a bartender, if I tell somebody I'm a mixologist. Yeah. The reactions are very different. They are. But I would I would posit Toby that you kind of straddle the line, don't you? You are certainly a, in in this in this conversation anyway a mixologist at the Violet Hour. But then you, I would think you're more of a bartender when you're at Mother's Ruin. I, I, tell me well, if I'm off base, but like Mother's Ruin to me is like that's a great bar. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's it's no temple to mixology, but it's a fucking great bar. Mm-hmm. It is no temple to mixology, but you know TJ was a cook and. You know, and Richard, who the two owners, original owners of the one in Nolita, and they, you know, they were making shrubs in 2009 and doing some cool stuff, but it never, it all happened downstairs and it was never talked about upstairs. And I would say the mother's room in Chicago, there's a lot of mixology that happens, but it happens in the basement, so we don't get it on you upstairs. Um, <laughs> uh, and we all appreciate it. Yeah. And I love that, you know, I think, uh, cause that's the thing, as I said, like, I want you to have the drink that I want you to have a great drink, but I want you to have the drink that I want to serve you. And so if you are looking for that, I, I love that you have both of these places at your disposal, right? You can put yeah. on, you know, a different, uh, a different mask at each one and deliver a different product. And both those products are great. They're simply quite different, right? hundred percent. I think this, again, if we're going to use another chef analogy, you know, a good friend of mine who I went to culinary school with uh, had a restaurant in Florida where he's from, and uh, it was gorgeous and served all the things, you know, foie gras, caviar, et cetera. But he also had two wheelie cart New York style hot dog stands that were out by pools for the season um, that he had high school kids run. And he said, yeah, I make more money on the hot dog stands, you know? Um, so like oh, yeah. there's, there's a, there's, there's two sides to, to everything. You know, you can be, you can be both things. Uh, we're not, we're not locked into being one or the other since we're driving down this road. Um, this is a question that you brought up and I want to dive into it and I'm hopeful maybe that our opinions are different, but, but I'm also excited if they're the same. Um, you questioned are cocktails art, are bartenders, technicians or artisans. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. Um, I think that cocktails absolutely can be art. I think that um, I think you need to be a really solid technician to be able to make a wonderful daiquiri, right? And that's not easy. You know, three ingredients in the truth. It's all you have to 
make that very minimalist cocktail really, really good. So you have to be a, a technician there. But if you're coming up with a cocktail and how you look at it, like we use, we use um, various terms like echoing, juxtapositioning, um, mirroring, um, complimenting. And we talk about, there's a story to each cocktail. And so we are writing a story that ends up in a glass. So I think that cocktails absolutely can be art, but they don't necessarily need to be. Mm, what are feel, your thoughts? Yeah. I feel like you took a kind of a safe way to answer your own question. You, you, you gave both. I truly feel, and I'm pretty sure I've even mentioned it on the show before. I certainly talked to my teams about it. I think we are craftsmen all the way, technicians all the way. I don't think there's, um, there's artistry in craft, but I think that my argument has always come down to art can move you. And then typically someone in the room will say, well, yeah, this cocktail moved me. And I say, yeah, but, it, but art can move you in any direction. If I make you a cocktail that makes you melancholy, you're probably never having that again. Right. I, I used to have this similar sort of stance when, when it came to food, when I was a chef, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm crafting this, um, honing it by making it dozens and dozens and if not hundreds of times over and over. And it's going to be able to move you in the direction of happiness only, right? I can't make you a soup that makes you, uh, you know, horrified. Uh, you'll never have that soup again, right? But I can, <laughs> well, make, a, I can could, make a piece of art. I can make a painting that's horrifying and you might buy it and hang it on your wall, right? And enjoy it. Uh, but I can't build you cabinets that are beautiful, but the shelves aren't level and the doors don't close right, right? Uh, they have to be, that has to be craft first. They can be artistic and beautiful in the end, but the functionality has to be there. I, I'm going to agree with you 100% and disagree with you also 100%. I, <laughs> I'm going to say you, okay. need, you need a math class. <laughs> um, fair enough. I think that if you are creating cocktails, you can 100% make people more than just laughy and drunk. I think that you can have – we use two terms. We use uh, comfort and curiosity, and one is – some sort of Proustian thing that is in your glass that takes you back to some other time or makes you remember something else. And that's the emotion that a cocktail can have. And the other one is curiosity, which is the intellect, which something goes into the glass and you're like, what the fuck is going on? And that's, that's in it's, it's your brain working compared to your heart. And so I think because you can get both of those and sometimes both of them in the same glass, I think that that is 100% art. But to do that right, like you said, every single time you have to be a great, uh, a great technician. Yeah, I think you're the first person in all my years of using this um, analogy to sway me even a little. Um, and by the use of, frankly, your terminologies of comfort and curiosity, I can see how I might make you some soup uh, that gives you this comforting feeling of, you know, Nona made this for me when I was vacationing at her home in, 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 in Italy. Uh, but then I can also make you a tomato soup that gives you some of that plus a, a, a curiosity towards um, uh, like what, what is in the soup that's making it so good. And the same could apply to a cocktail. So, wow, you've shaken me off my pretty firm foundation, at least a little Ooh. bit. At least a little okay. bit. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I mean, you could go read those 1,200 arduous pages of Proust, which is all based <laughs> on one fucking cookie. And, um, you know, and if that's not art, 
talking about food, I don't know what is. <laughs> right. Uh, well, listen, man, it's been great having you on the show. Um, and I really appreciate you taking some time out because I know you're here in New York to do a book uh, um, uh, signing this evening. Um, uh, and uh, again, just really excited that you took the time. out. And I'm going to try and swing over there and see you and grab a copy of the book because I don't have one um, so that I can dive in and, and, and take a real look inside your brain. Um, speaking of looking inside your brain, uh, if anybody listening wants to follow your hijinks, where can they get around you on uh, social media? Um, <clears throat> probably the best one would be Instagram. I'm Toby cocktail. All one word. Um, that's probably the thing that has the most cocktail related content. Cool. Toby cocktail. We'll put that, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes uh, and we'll get people following you and, and, and asking you questions and hopefully seeking out you and the knowledge that you have uh, put down in this book that I'm certain is going to become a, 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 a popular uh, tome amongst the, our set. Um, cool. So really excited to maybe bump into you this evening. I'm going to try my best to get over there. Um, Excellent. And uh, again, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, Thank you very much, Souther. Yeah, man. Really, really good to have you. Um, that's it for this week's right. episode of the Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Um, thanks so much for tuning in, guys, and uh, we'll see you next week. Cheers. 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 So you don't shun the devil with your rock. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. It's gonna get you